Okay, we want to get started back um, since time is really ticking away. Um, and this is our final seminar on the, the series that I've been doing on, on unity within the church. Um, and for this final um, um, hour, I will continue on what we began the last hour. And I know there's some people who are new, but just, just fit right in. We're talking about unity and we're talking about John 17, um, Christ's prayer uh, for unity that, that emphasizes three times in John 17, Christ prays uh, the night before he dies, three times he says that they may be one even as we are one. The burden of his prayer was that his followers would be one. And secondly, he says that when his followers are one, even as he and the Father are one, then the world will know that he was sent, and then the world will believe. So that unity is witnessing, and unity is evangelism, um, and, and so forth. So we, we are talking now about the, the power of unity and how we really get this unity. Is, is where we've been talking about. Um, we, we just looked at, we stopped on the last hour, uh, Galatians 3.28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the centrality of being in Christ as being the basis for our unity. I want to continue with another passage of Scripture, Colossians 3.11, which says the same message of Galatians 3. I'm just trying to make the point that it's a central theme in the New Testament. We see it coming up again and again. Uh, Paul talks about, and I've put on the new man, uh, a renewal um, in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, a barbarian, a Scythian, a slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So what Paul is talking about, we need as Christians, is to put on this new man, this is image for, for becoming a Christian, which, t which provides for us a renewal. And in this renewal, this new man in Christ, in a divided world where class mattered, where status mattered, where the difference between Jew and Gentile mattered, where nationality mattered, where your social station in life mattered, Paul says there is now no distinction in the household of faith because we have been renewed uh, by the power of Christ. There's a unity, the divisions according to religion, Jew or Greek, according to culture, barbarian or Scythian, according to gender, male or female, should no longer matter because of the power of God working in us. Paul teaches the fact that Christ's death for us, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.15, has Christ's death for us should change our entire outlook on life. Because Jesus has died for all, we no longer live for ourselves. Our outlook is different. Our focus is different. Um, we live no longer for ourselves, but we live for him. And because we live for him, we now look at humanity through heaven's eyes. Spirit of Prophecy gives us several secrets of unity. Um, first one, I'm looking at Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 259. 
the equality of believers as one of the, the secrets of unity. Then as the children of God are one in Christ, Ellen White says, how does Jesus look upon caste, upon society distinctions, upon the division of man from his fellow man because of color, race, position, wealth, birth or attainment? She asks the question and then she continues, the secret of unity is found in the equality of believers in Christ. The reason for all division, all discord and difference is found in separation from Christ. Christ is the center to which all should be attracted. For the nearer we approach the center, the closer we shall come together in feeling, in sympathy, in love, growing into the character and image of God. With God, there is no respect of persons. So we maintain this unity in Christ through exposure to the scriptures. It's another secret of unity. The Bible is clear. Another secret is one is the equality of believers in Christ. Another secret is through connection to his word. By beholding, we become changed. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Or as the New King James Version says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So, so we are believe in equality, which is what the new vision, the new renewal that Christ has provided us. And then we get connected with God through his word. Great Controversy, page 379. If God's professed people would receive the light as it shines from his word, they would reach that unity for which Christ prayed that which the apostle describes the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So another key to the unity is for us to receive the light as it shines upon us from his word. Um, one of the things we're doing in this series of talks is talking about how central the Bible and spirit of prophecy makes Christian unity. And one of the problems we have as a people is that we haven't heeded this message at all. We need to accept the word that God has given us and in his strength go forth and seek to fulfill um, his word. Another key to unity is the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the agency of the Godhead that produces this unity. In fact, we, we read in John 17 that they may be one, Jesus says, in us. That they, his children, will be one in us. It is through the power of God that we can be one. The gift of the Spirit, that great glory which the Father gave to the Son, he gives to his followers and that makes them one. The more Christians are taken up with the glory of God, the more we focus on what God wants us to be, the less desirous we are of gaining attention to ourselves, of having glory for ourselves, and the less disposed we are to quarrel. Because if we are focusing on the big picture, and we are focusing on the glory that God has given us and our opportunity of being service with him, the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Testimonies to the Church, Volume 8, page 243. In order to be united, we must place ourselves under Christ's command. Our characters must be molded in harmony with his character. 
our wills must be surrendered to his will. Then we shall work together without a thought of collision. She doesn't even say we'll work together without colliding. She said even the thought of collision won't occur as we work together. And she continues, the spirit of God alone can bring about this oneness. He who sanctified himself can sanctify his disciples. United with him, they will be united with one another in the most holy faith. When we strive for this unity, as God desires us to strive for it, it will come to us. You know, there, there are other passages of Scripture that say that. Um, that. That we have, as the heart panteth after the water brooks, we have to, we have, to have a desire for it. We, we have to have a burden. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. If we are in our latency and condition and we are content with the status quo and we have no desire for it, we will not experience the unity that God wants us to have. We have to strive for it. God has to do it in us, but we have to sense our need for what God is able and willing to do for us. Another quotation on the power of the Holy Spirit as a key to producing unity. When the Holy Spirit controls the minds of our church members, there will be seen in our churches a much higher standard in speech, in ministry, in spirituality than is now seen. There will be, Ellen White continues, a healthy increase of unity and love, which will bear testimony to the world that God has sent his son to die for the redemption of sinners. The point I'm emphasizing again is that when we are controlled by the Spirit, there will be a healthy increase in unity and love. And don't we need that? Don't we need a healthy increase in unity and love? And that is, is a promise that, that will be ours. One of the things that the Holy Spirit, our submission to the Holy Spirit will do, it will lead us to use our talents in the service of God. It will make his service central to what he wants us to accomplish. The book Christian Service, page 343, 344. The Lord places in our hands his gifts in order that we shall divide them with those who are needy. And it is this practical giving that will be to us a sure panacea for all selfishness. Now that's an important point. We don't exist for ourselves. In fact, nothing that we have is ours. It's the Lord's. We are stewards of God's resources. And one of the interesting things, if we think of the Lord's Prayer, what did Jesus teach us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven. It's instructive. He didn't say to pray, my Father who art in heaven, but it's our Father. It didn't teach us to pray, give me this day my daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. And you know what? Sometimes God gives me daily bread enough for me and for my brother and sister. And the challenge we have to ask is, do we use all that God has given us selfishly for ourselves? It's a, it's a focus on community. It's a focus on all of us. It is through the exercise of this practical love that the churches will draw nearer together in Christian unity. When we are burdened for the needs of others, when we are burdened and, and extend ourselves in giving of ourselves to others, that is one of the things that will draw us nearer together in unity. Through the love of the brethren, 
love to God is increased because he has not forgotten those who were in distress and thus thank offerings are sent to God for his care. So we, we have work to do in terms of serving others is, is a part of what gives us um, that unity. Another quotation on the necessity of service, Christian service, page 47. Never can the church reach the position that God desires it to reach until it is bound up in sympathy with its missionary workers. Never can the unity for which Christ prayed exist until spirituality is brought into missionary service and until the church becomes an agency for the support of missions. So, so giving of ourselves in service, in mission, having the burden of meeting the needs of others being central is part of what is required to bring us together in unity. The Spirit of Prophecy also talks about some of the key enemies of unity. And here are, here are five of them that she talks about, and we will look at the quotations. Gossip, envy, suspicion, fault-finding, a spirit of criticism, pride in our own opinion, and pride and selfishness are all linked as specific enemies of unity. Um, here is the, the Bible on gossip, Proverbs 6, 20 and 20, 20 to 22. For the, for the lack of wood, the fire goes out, the wise man says, and where there is no whisperer, this is the, the, the term being used for gossiper, contention quiets down. Like a charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels, and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. So it's the text of the Bible of the power that the tongue can create conflict and discord and dissension. Um, Ellen White writing in um, the Bible Commentary, Volume 6, page 1163, she says that rumors are frequently the destroyers of unity among the brethren. I'm talking about gossip as one of the identified enemies of unity. There are some who watch with open mind and ears to catch flying scandal. That's, that's beautiful imagery, you know. You have the picture of the wind going by and people are just looking for something else. It's like they're part of the paparazzi. They, they, they gather up little incidents which may be trifling in themselves, but which are repeated and exaggerated until a man is made an offender for a word. Their motto seems to be, Ellen White says, report and we will report it. These talebearers are doing the devil's work with surprising fidelity, little knowing how offensive their course is to God. So we need to recognize gossip and, and, uh, as a, a, a source of disunity in the church. She continues, this is the same uh, passage. If these people who are spending time as talebearers, if they would spend half the energy and zeal that is given to this unholy work in examining their own hearts, they would find so much to do to cleanse their souls from impurity that they would have no time or disposition to criticize their brethren, and they would not fall under the power of this temptation. The door of the mind should be closed against, they say, or I have said. Yes. This is um, 
Bible Commentary, Volume 6, page 1163. The 6 BC is Bible Commentary. Um, at the end of the Bible Commentary, there are Ellen White quotes, and this is Volume 6, page 1163. Thank you. Um, by the way, I'm glad you stopped me and asked. I, I have said this is a seminar-type format. If there's a question, if there's a comment, um, feel free to stop me. Another uh, Spirit of Prophecy quotation talks about envy, suspicion, and fault finding. She begins by saying, it is not the opposition of the world that endangers us the most. We worry about the external threats. She's saying it's not the external threats that are our biggest problem. It is the evil cherished in the hearts of professed believers that works our most grievous disaster and most retards the progress of God's cause. So it's not the terrorists from outside, folks. It's the terrorists from within. That's what, I'm, that's what she's saying. That works our most grievous disaster and most retards the progress of God's cause. There is no surer way of weakening our spirituality than by being envious, suspicious of one another, full of fault finding and evil surmising. So th those are our dangers, internal, the, the sins of the spirit. Envy, suspicion, fault finding, evil surmising are things that, that really affect us. She quotes James 3, 16 and 17 and here is the text. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. We're talking about the enemies of unity as the Bible and spirit of prophecy has um, identified them. In fact, one of the interesting things Ellen White made, and, and you know, we, 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 we read in the book of Acts of the, the power of the early church under the power of Pentecost, how they moved forward and was evangelizing the world and, 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 and turning the world upside down for Jesus. What led to the demise of the success of the early church? The spirit of prophecy says it was the spirit of criticism that destroyed the witness of the early church. Testimonies to the Church, volume 7, page 241. After the descent of the Holy Spirit, the disciples went forth to proclaim a risen Savior. But the early Christians began to look for defects in one another, dwelling upon mistakes, giving praise to unkind criticism. They lost sight of the Savior and the great love he had revealed for sinners. They became more strict in regard to outward ceremonies, more particular about the theory of the faith, more severe in their criticisms. In their zeal to condemn others, they forgot their own errors. They forgot the lesson of brotherly love that Christ had taught. And saddest of all, she says, they were unconscious of their loss. There is a lot in this passage. This is amazing. And, and, and it shows the dangers, the potential dangers that we face. The early Christians who started out so well lost sight of the Savior and his love for others. When we recognize who we are and what Christ has done for us, 
and we have an appreciation of our own need for His grace. It changes our outlook on others. We see in every other child of humanity a soul for whom Christ died, a soul for whom Christ loved as much as He loves me. And I think that's one of the reasons why Ellen White says, it would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour every day meditating upon the life of Christ, especially the closing moments of his history, to, to remind us of what he's done for us, to remind us who we are, to give us hope, but also to give us a vision of our, our, our potential and our ministry um, in terms of reaching out to others. This is a, a striking indictment um, that they, they lost sight of the Savior. They got strict, bunch of rules in regard to outward conformity, more particular about having the right doctrine, more severe in the criticisms of one another, forgetting their own errors and our own weaknesses, we forgot the lesson, they forgot the lesson of brotherly love. Testimonies to Ministers, page three. Pride in our own opinions is one of the dangers she identifies. Those who think that they will never have to give up a cherished view never have occasion to change an opinion will be disappointed. As long as we hold to our own ideas and opinions with determined persistency, we cannot have the unity for which Christ prayed. God and heaven alone are infallible. We have many lessons to learn and many, many to unlearn. And, and, and it says that as we, as we approach this topic and as we approach the scripture in general, too often we approach the Bible looking for things that is consistent with what we believe. We're looking for evidence, support our views. And she's saying we need to approach humbly, asking the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us into all truth, recognizing that we don't have it all right yet. We don't have our act together completely yet. There's a lot of things that we fervently believe that we need to unlearn. And there are lots of new things that God wants to teach us. And so our attitude and our pride in our own views and ideas can be an enemy um, uh, of, of unity. Here's another striking statement. If pride and selfishness were laid aside, five minutes would remove most difficulties. This is early writings, page 119. It's, it's amazing. I, I, I chuckle all the time as I read the Spirit of Prophecy because the stuff she comes up with sometimes um, is it, it, so striking. If pride and selfishness were laid aside, five minutes would remove most difficulties that we face, that we face in, in relating to each other. Okay. So I, I've talked about unity in, in the abstract. I, I've talked about how God is calling us to unity. I, I want to end by, by thinking more specifically to one of the topics that I dealt with yesterday, um, where I discussed the unity as it affects church structures. That the unity we have is it's not just an abstract idea. A unity that will be visible to the world, that will convince the world, has to be a unity in action that the world can see, that is evident to them. And it has implications for certainly how we live in our homes, 
how we live in our churches, but it also has implications, the spirit of prophecy indicates, for how we organize our church structures and how we work together as brethren, if our church structures themselves illustrate that unity. So back in the time of Ellen White, there was a proposal to have each nationality in Europe form its own conference. The views was the Germans are not going to get along with the Scandinavians and with the French, and so plus their language differences. The proposal was organize teams for each and organize the church specific to each nationality. There'll be a conference for each nationality, so you'd have the language fit and you'd have the cultural fit. And Ellen White, in dealing with this, Testaments to the Church, Volume 9, page 195, 196, according to the light given me of God. So it's a case where she's saying she didn't just make this up, it's not just her idea, but God has shown her that separate organizations, instead of bringing about unity, will create discord. If our brethren will seek the Lord together in humility of mind, those who now think it is necessary to organize separate German and Scandinavian conferences will see that the Lord desires them to work together as brethren. If we are to carry on the work most successfully, the talents to be found among the English and Americans should be united with the talents of those of every other nationality. And each nationality should labor earnestly for their own nationality. Is that what she said? No. She said each nationality should live earnestly for every other nationality. Our effort should be to answer Christ's prayer for his disciples that they should be one. There's a lot in here. She is saying that a notion of, which is, which is a, a very profound notion in church, church growth circles today, that the way you're going to be efficient in evangelism is get distinctive groups. You want to reach a middle class? Get a middle class community and have established a middle class church because they will have greater affinity with the middle class population and then you will be more successful in reaching that group. But Ellen White says that separate conferences based on nationality violates John 17. And I am suggesting that if separate conferences based on nationality violates John 17, separate conferences based on race also violate John 17. She's also saying that in the model of working, you want to think not only of having people from a particular language and cultural group work, but bringing other groups as well, so you have everybody working for each other. And so that is what will give success to, to the work, and importantly, that is what is necessary to answer Christ's prayer of John 17. I don't know if she could be more specific, if it could be clearer of what we need to do and what the Lord wants us to do in terms of unity as from this um, quotation. And in fact, I, I repeat again, harmony and union existing among men of varied dispositions is the strongest witness that can be born that God has sent his son into the world to save sinners. The strongest witness. 
So we want to witness for the Lord. Let's begin with love and unity. That is the strongest witness. That is what the world is waiting to see. That's the miraculous power of the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit transforming us that the world is waiting to see. Now I must tell you folks, I'm a sociologist. I'm a sociologist who studies race in American society among other things. And from a sociological point of view, the continued maintenance of separate conferences based on race makes sense. The conventional wisdom says that any attempt to develop a racially combined structure is naive, impractical, not consistent with history, not consistent with where human nature is. I have been told by others that racism is deeply ingrained in the culture and institutions of American society, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that is in fact true. There has been a dramatic change in racial attitudes over time, but commitment to the norms are superficial. I looked at data on that yesterday. Moreover, decades of research in the United States on racial attitudes has revealed the uncomfortable but well-established fact that there's more prejudice within the Christian church than outside of it. That's true. There was a book published in the 60s entitled The Biased and the Pious. And the point of the book, it reviewed the scientific evidence that showed the relationship between prejudice and religion. And what it found was that members of churches are more prejudiced than non-members. It found that people who go to church are more prejudiced than people who don't go to church. It found that people who hold conservative theological beliefs are more prejudiced than those who hold more liberal beliefs. That's, by conservative theological beliefs are things like believing in the virgin birth of Jesus, believing that the Bible is the word of God, that the Bible is inspired by God. People who hold that in the United States are more prejudiced than people who don't. So in general, the more religious you are, the more likely you are to be prejudiced. And that's why people say to think that we can do this is ridiculous. I mentioned I was a sociologist. But my brothers and sisters, I am first and foremost a Christian. And my Bible tells me, and the spirit of prophecy tells me, that separate conferences based on race stand in stark contrast to God's revealed will. In the 17th chapter of John, we have been studying that Jesus indicates unity is inescapably fundamental to the gospel. Unity is witnessing. It's the strongest witness that can be born. Harmony and union, the strongest witness. The oneness of Christ's followers is the acid test of his authenticity and the ultimate proof of the power of the gospel. The ultimate proclamation that we can make to the world that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. The ultimate evidence that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood can be transformed and lose all their guilty stains. Yes, it is true that social scientific research suggests that prejudice and discrimination appears to be inevitable. But we also believe, if we are Christians, that the power of God is able to do things that we otherwise cannot do. We also believe as Christians that God can do the impossible. A unity that will convince the world must be visible and readily evident to the world. It cannot be limited to some doctrinal unity or some mystical invisible unity because the world can't see that. 
the world must see in practice a unity that demonstrates that the gospel of Jesus Christ is strong enough and powerful enough to destroy the sectarianism and the selfishness and the ethnocentrism that is so natural to human nature. And somebody says, but aren't there advantages of regional conferences? Without question, they have provided important benefits. They have facilitated opportunities for leadership and for participation of blacks that did not occur before they existed. But is it possible, and they've also facilitated evangelistic outreach, but is it possible that the growth rates and leadership opportunities could have been even greater if we were following God's ideal? Leadership opportunities are possible within conference structures if we develop ones that are built on principles of equality. Church growth experts confirm, and I mentioned this a minute ago, that racially and culturally distinct churches make for more efficient evangelism. That's what the experts say. But I leave this question with you. Is it ever right to sacrifice the truth of the gospel for the expediency of efficient evangelism. More important, if we win persons by distorting and compromising the gospel, what on earth have we won them to? The need for efficient evangelism should not allow the truth of the gospel to be denied by maintaining a church structure which reflects and appears to approve an evil system. The time has come for Seventh-day Adventists to move beyond that which is expedient to that which is morally right. We have to do what is right, though the heavens fall. Moreover, what data did the church growth experts use to reach their conclusions? More than 100 years of Adventist mission outreach has provided compelling evidence that the gospel message can cross boundaries of race nationality, and culture, because all the missionaries that went out did not belong to the cultures to which they went. The fundamental problem, I believe, is that as a church and as a people, our current thinking about unity, our current thinking on race relations, concedes the frailties of human nature instead of emphasizing the life-changing possibilities of the cross. There are no successful models and from a purely human analysis, we say, based on history, based on experience, that the status quo is the best that we can do. But a question I want to leave you with is, does the gospel have the power to transform human nature and to create racial reconciliation and harmony such as the world has yet to witness? I believe too often in the church we act as if the cross never happened. Are God's hands tied when it comes to the questions of race? When it comes to the questions of race, is God dead? Do we serve a living savior? It is time for us to move beyond what is expedient to what is morally right. We need to carefully evaluate what drives our behavior. We need to give primacy to theological imperatives instead of to practical and sociological considerations. God wants us to rise to the demands of the gospel. God wants us to proclaim to the world that he lives. 
Jesus loves us just the way we are, but Jesus loves us too much to let us stay the same. In the New Testament church, the principle of unity was expressed in practical and visible ways across all barriers, including racial ones. For example, in the church at Antioch, we read in Acts 13 and verse 1, there was Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. In other words, in the church of Antioch, there were two Jews, two Africans, and a Roman aristocrat. The church at Antioch was a multiracial, multicultural, multi-class, integrated church and a vigorous witnessing center. All races and classes were worshiping and fellowshipping together. What is significant to Bible scholars about the church at Antioch? It was in Antioch that the followers of Jesus Christ were first called Christians. They had demonstrated in their life, in their ministry, in their work, the power of the gospel to transform and to unite people. The church at Antioch was proclaiming that God was alive. They were demonstrating that in the community of faith, there is neither Jew nor Greek because racial superiority is gone. There is neither slave nor free because class superiority is gone. There is neither male nor female because sexual superiority is gone. After one becomes a Christian, you are still black or white, illiterate or highly educated, male or female, but these distinctions no longer matter. They no longer create barriers to fellowship. Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit have helped his people overcome that. Unity does not mean that black Christians and Asian Christians and Latino Christians need to be made into the image of white Christians or vice versa. It does not mean that there will be a dull and monotonous uniformity about humanity and that all styles of life or worship need to be identical. Unity does not mean that we as individuals or as a group lose our individuality. Unity means that through the grace of God, we reflect his image. The differences of cultural background can provide spiritual enrichment. In fact, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 3, it was with all the saints that we are able to comprehend the fullness of God's love. They without us will not be made perfect, but we without them will not be made perfect either. In fact, Ellen White states it beautifully. Bible Commentary, Volume 2, page 1029. She says, there is no person, there is no nation that is perfect in every habit and every thought. One must learn of another. And that is why God wants the different nationalities and races and classes and people to mingle together so that we can be one in judgment and one in purpose. And then the union that is in Christ will be exemplified. So in fact, the differences amongst us, God has placed them there for enrichment. But we can't benefit from what others have to offer if we never associate with them, if we don't mingle with them, if we have no contact with them. Unity is sharing together all the talents all the gifts that God has given us in the worship of the church and in the leadership of the church in, at the local level 
at a national level and the international level. I also want to talk about something else. Sometimes when I talk about unity, there are people who tell me the problem is quite simple. All we need to do to bring about unity is to eliminate the regional conferences. Black conferences are not the problem. They are a symptom. The Lake Region Conference is no more of a problem than the Michigan Conference. The Allegheny East Conference is no more a problem than the Chesapeake Conference. We don't need to eliminate the regional conferences. What we need to do is to eliminate all of the current structures and build new ones based on new principles. The regional conferences exist because they were excluded from the other ones. So just eliminating them doesn't solve the problem and doesn't get at the fundamental problem of sharing together in the power of the, of the Bible. We need to eliminate all the current structures and build new ones based on new principles. The practical difficulties linked to making such changes are enormous and may appear insurmountable. Acting as if real, deep, divisive racial differences do not exist, and if there hasn't been a history of conflict, is not productive. Overcoming the distrust and the suspicion that has been molded by a hundred years of racial discrimination, tension, and misunderstanding in the church will not be easy. It will take time to work through these obstacles, but we cannot allow practical considerations to negate theological imperatives. There is no five-day plan to accomplish this, but nothing is too hard for God and his spirit-filled children. The fear of uncharted difficulties is not an acceptable excuse for disobedience. When I talk to church leaders about this, they talk about the difficulties and how it is possible, how we will, will we do it. I don't have the answers, the Holy Spirit does. And if we fall on our knees at the Holy Spirit and seek his guidance, he will show us what we need to do. And we don't need to worry about it. God is gonna give us the grace and the strength and the power. Christ Subject Lessons, page 173. If we surrender our lives to his service, we can never be placed in a position for which God has not made provision. God already has made provision. God already has the solutions. Are we ready to obey him? It was not until the feet of the priests at the River Jordan touched the water in obedience to God's command that the Jordan River parted and created dry ground for the Israelites to go across. We can't sit on the bank saying, we don't know how it's going to happen. We need to decide to do what God is asking us to do, and he is going to provide the way because he has already made the provision of what we need. Whatever may be our situation, as a church in our lives, we have a guide to direct our way. Whatever our perplexities, we have a sure counselor. Whatever our sorrow, bereavement, or loneliness, we have a sympathizing friend. If in our ignorance we make missteps, Christ does not leave us. His voice clear and distinct is heard saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6, he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, the poor also, and him that hath no helper. So we have resources available to us. If we want to be obedient, God will reveal his message to us. God's message to the church of Laodicea challenges us to a higher level of righteousness. It also declares that we need to repent individually 
and corporately of sin that we do not normally recognize as sin. The message to the church at Laodicea is that they are in sin, but they don't even know it. They are lukewarm and they are unaware of their condition. Could part of that sin that we, the church does not acknowledge, this deeper level of guilt that we have not yet discerned, could part of that be the inhumanity of man to man? Could this absence of righteousness, of faith, be visibly demonstrated by the sin of racial division in our midst? I believe our lack of unity is a misrepresentation of God's character of love. Taking hold of the message of Laodicea will bring about revival and reformation, the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs, the Spirit of Prophecy says. But revival and reformation is more than fuzzy holy feelings and fervent individual prayers. A lot of times when we think of revival and reformation, we just think of what's happening within us individually. But look at what the Spirit of Prophecy says. Reformation is a radical break with the status quo. Reformation is doing things differently. She says reformation signifies a reorganization, a change in ideas, in theories, in habits and practices. It's not just feelings inside of you, it's reformation. It's about doing things differently, getting in harmony with what God is calling us to do. Reformation will not bring forth the good fruit of righteousness unless it's connected with the revival of the Spirit. So the two things go hand in hand. We're not off on our own reorganizing for the sake of reorganizing, but motivated by the power of the Spirit, we are doing what God wants us to do. Revival and reformation are to do their appointed work, and in this work, they must blend. Revival and reformation, then, will require a revolutionary break with tradition. Revival and reformation will require us to do things differently than we've done them. I read this quotation before, but I'll read it again because it's appropriate now. Um, Ellen White warns us that those who think that they will never have to give up a cherished view, never have an occasion to change an opinion, will be disappointed. As long as we hold to our own ideas and opinions with de determined persistency, we cannot have the unity for which Christ prayed. God and heaven alone are infallible. We have many lessons to learn and many, many to unlearn. My point is, what credibility can we as Seventh-day Adventists, as Christ's remnant church have, if we remain so clearly divided structurally and institutionally? Christ's plea for this demonstration of unity is never more urgent than right now. We live in a divided world. Racial alienation is one of the biggest problems in American society. Billy Graham recently wrote that in Christianity Today. We need to gain a new vision of what it means to be all one in Jesus Christ. On the matter of race relations, Adventists have dragged their feet for a century. The evangelical non-Christian world has been very active in the last decade. There's a lot happening. We're not the only church divided. There's a lot divided, and there's a lot of activity in the Christian world right now on this topic. But we are still dragging our feet and not being very involved. What do we need? We need more of the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit moves upon human minds, all petty complaints and accusations between man and his fellow man will be put away. The bright beams of the Son of Righteousness will shine into the chambers of the 
mind, and heart. In our worship of God, there will be no distinction between rich and poor, white and black. All prejudice will be melted away. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in, the Spirit of Prophecy says. When we approach God, it will be as one brotherhood. We are pilgrims and strangers, bound for a better country, even a heavenly. There, there all pride, all accusation, all self-deception will forever have an end. Every mask will be laid aside, and we shall see him as he is. Another quotation from the Spirit of Prophecy. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, there will be a triumph of humanity over prejudice in seeking the salvation of the souls of human beings. God will control minds. Human hearts will love as Christ loved. And the color line will be regarded by many very differently from the way in which it is now regarded. To love as Christ loves lifts the mind into a pure, heavenly, unselfish atmosphere. What can our future be? Again, from the spirit of prophecy, um, the southern work, Walls of separation have been built up between the whites and the blacks, Ellen White wrote. These walls of prejudice will tumble down of themselves as did the walls of Jericho when Christians obey the word of God, which enjoins on them supreme love to their maker and impartial love to their neighbors. But there are preconditions. Men, she says, may have both hereditary and cultivated prejudices. But when the love of Jesus fills the heart, it's what we need, the love of Jesus in the heart, and they become one with Christ, they will have the same spirit that he had. If a colored brother sits by their side, they will not be offended or despise him, Ellen White says. They are journeying to the same heaven and will be seated at the same table to eat bread in the kingdom of God. If Jesus is abiding in our hearts, we cannot despise the colored man or any other man who has the same Savior abiding in his heart. When these unchristian prejudices are broken down, more earnest effort will be put forth to do missionary work among the colored race. And finally, I want to conclude with the example of Peter, because it's a sobering example for us. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Peter was used mightily of God to win thousands to Jesus, but Peter was still prejudiced. God had to send him a special vision so that his effectiveness could be increased and his ministry could be expanded. The vision conveyed to Peter, the spirit of prophecy says, brought both reproof and instruction. It revealed to him the purpose of God, that by the death of Christ, the Gentiles should be made fellow heirs with the Jews to the blessings of salvation. And yet none of the disciples had preached the gospel to the Gentiles. In their minds, the disciples' minds, the middle wall of partition, broken down by the death of Christ, still existed. And their labors had been confined to Jews, for they had looked upon the Gentiles as excluded from the blessings of the gospel. Now the Lord was seeking to teach Peter the worldwide extent of the divine plan. The time had come for an entirely new phase of work to be entered upon by the Church of Christ. The door that many of the Jewish converts had closed against the Gentiles was now to be thrown open. Continuing from Acts of the Apostles, how carefully the Lord worked to overcome the prejudice 
against the Gentiles that had been so firmly fixed in Peter's mind by his socialization as a Jew. By the vision of the sheet and its contents, God sought to divest the apostles' minds of this prejudice and to teach the important truth that in heaven there is no respect of persons, that Jew and Gentile are alike precious in God's sight. While Peter was meditating on the meaning of the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, free men seek thee, arise and go with them. To Peter, this was a trying command, and the command of unity may be trying for us. And it was with reluctance at every step that he undertook the duty laid upon him, but he dared not disobey. Brothers and sisters, I hope that would be our desire when we leave here today. It may be a reluctant step. It may be a difficult step. But we dare not disobey. On the following morning, Peter set out for Caesarea, accompanied by six of his brethren. They were to be his witnesses, for Peter knew that he would be called to account for so direct a violation of Jewish teachings. He struggled with it, but he was obedient. And what is our destiny? What is our goal? What does the future hold for us? After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, <clears throat> of all nations and kindreds and towns and people, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and upon the Lamb. In heaven we will be united. Let's get our acts together under the power of the Holy Spirit to repent, to go to the Lord, to ask for His grace, to ask for His power, so that we can be united on this earth so that the world may know that Jesus has come and that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that blood can be transformed, lose all their guilty stains and live for Jesus. That is my prayer for each one of us that we will go forth for this place in God's strength, not on a political agenda, but on a spiritual agenda to each of us become everything that God wants us to be and to use our influence to prompt others within our sphere of influence to accept God's call to unity and become what he wants us to be. Our time is virtually up. <laughs> um, so maybe it's time for us to end with a word of prayer and ask God to be with us. Um, as we go forth from this place. Why don't we stand with me for a word of prayer? <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your grace that is greater than all of our sin. We thank you so much for the treasure that is hidden in your word and for the gift of the spirit of prophecy that so clearly outlines the challenges and the opportunities that are ahead of us. We thank you, Lord, for the assurance that you will never put us in any situation for which you have not already made a provision. Help us, Lord, strengthen us where we are weak, and give us the desire that more than anything else, we want to be faithful to you, and we want to do your will in our lives and use our influence to be a force for good in lifting up Jesus 
so we can finish the work and go home to live with you forever. Bless each one bowed in my presence. You know the needs of every heart. Give them that which they need most of you. Strengthen them where they are weak. Give them the answer to every question. Give them the victory over temptation. Give them the power over, over bad habits. Give them everything that they need so that we can develop the characters that you want us to have so that we can live for you. Is my prayer in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen and amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.